some of the chapters throughout Romans. We're ready for chapter 6. Here's an outline of the book of Romans. As you well recognize, it divides itself naturally into three sections. Even a cursory reading through the book begins to reveal that, that there is a shift at each one of these section breaks at chapter 9 and then a later at chapter 12. But this first section here concerning justification by faith apart from the law is where we are in talking about chapter 6. And that divides itself into three sections where we talk about man's need for justification and how that man is justified by faith apart from the law. But in chapters 5 through 8, the focal point is what justification means to us. And last week in chapter 5, we talked about the blessings of being justified by faith. Tonight we want to look at chapter 6. And the point of chapter 6 is that it doesn't mean that we can continue to practice sin. And so we have, before this chapter begins, a statement has just been made. A point had just been made in chapter 5. So go back to chapter 5 in verse 20 and notice where he's talking about the blessings and the benefits that there is an abundance of grace. And he had said this at chapter 5 and 20, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. However much sin there is, there's more grace. So wherever sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Perhaps that could be misunderstood. To where some may think what that means is that the more I sin, the more grace I get. If there's more grace than there is sin, if I sin more, there's more grace. And so does that mean then that we should continue to practice sin? Let's go back to chapter 3 just for a moment. Perhaps this is what chapter 3 and in verse 8 is about. Paul said in chapter 3 and in verse 8, Shall we not say, let us do evil that good may come? As some have slanderously reported and affirmed that we say. Now Paul said, said I hadn't said that. I've never taught that. But it has been reported that that's what I teach. That let us do evil that good may come. Well, where would they get that idea? Well, I'm not sure where they would get that idea. Perhaps they had heard things from Paul, like in chapter 5 and in verse 20, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There is more grace than there is sin. So that leads to the question found in chapter 6. So we simply call chapter 6 show that we are not to continue in sin. But notice in verse 1, he raises the question that arises out of chapter 5 and in verse 20. And that is, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I know he's talking about that of chapter 5 now and in verse 20. So does this mean then that because there is an abundance of grace that we shall continue to practice sin? Because there's always grace to take care of that. And his answer is in verse 2, certainly not. King James says, God forbid. In no way possible shall we continue to practice sin. Now the rest of the chapter is building the answer to that question. How did he arrive at certainly not? On what basis, Paul, are you saying that we shall not continue to practice sin? And he makes basically three arguments. But before we do that, here's some things we're going to learn from Romans chapter 6. We're going to learn some basic things about repentance, what repentance is, what it involves. And so we can walk away from chapter 6, and there's some very practical things about repentance in chapter 6. Tell you something else we're going to learn from chapter 6. We're going to learn something about the action of baptism and how that relates to our continuing to practice in sin. And we're going to learn a great deal about free moral agency. I don't know of another chapter in all the Bible that illustrates greater the principle of free moral agency than Romans chapter 6. And we'll see that particularly beginning at verse 12. Here are the three things he talks about. 
He takes a look at the past, he takes a look at the present, he takes a look at the future. And then shall we continue to practice sin? After that we've become children of God, now that we are Christians, now we've been justified by faith, shall we continue to make a practice of sin in our life like we did before? Well, maybe so since where sin abounded, uh, grace did much more abound. No, 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 not at all. On what basis do you say that, Paul? By looking at the past, by looking at the present, and by looking at the future. Let's start with the past. Verse 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 7. We're not leaving any verses out. We'll come back and get <clears throat> verses 3 to 5 here in just a moment. But let's talk about verse 2 and then verses 6 and 7. He starts by looking at the past. Well, what does he say in, about the past? Well, first of all, he says that we're dead now to sin. We're dead to sin. Certainly not, for how shall we that died, who died to sin, live any longer in it? He said we're now dead to sin. We once were dead in sin, but now he says we're dead to sin. It's in a past tense that we, are, we died to sin. We died in the past. More about that in a moment. But now that we're dead, death always means a separation. And now that we're separated from sin and severed and separated from sin, we're not continuing to live in it any longer. So he talks about the past, what you've already done prior to becoming a child of God. You're dead to sin. Following that same line of thought, he talks about the old man being crucified in verses 6 and 7. Notice at verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now let's stop for a moment and talk about the old man. Who or what is the old man? The Calvinistic idea is that man's old sinful nature, that he was born in sin, he has the sinful nature, and they base that on the fact that man inherits sin somehow. So that's the old, the old man that was crucified. Well, the context is going to show otherwise. The context is going to show us that the old man that he's talking about in verse 6 is the same one that is described as, in verse 6, described as being the body of sin. In verse 7, for we who have died to sin are freed from sin. So it's the same idea of the old man being crucified, is the same thing as the body of sin being done away. It's the same thing in verse 7 as having died to sin. He's just talking about that old manner of life. By the way, it's in contrast to the new life found in verse 4. Here's the newness of life. So that's the old manner of life. But now let's go back to verse 6. Knowing that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away. That is, when we became children of God, the old life of sin was crucified. Now he uses the term crucifixion because that was one of the most gruesome forms of death that involves suffering and pain. So why does he mention that? Well, temptation is still alive. Temptation is still there after becoming a child of God. And it may suggest something about the pain of putting sin away. It involves a painful separation from sin. But nonetheless, he says at verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. Now verse 7, for he who has died is freed from sin. So should we continue to practice sin? His answer is no. On, on what basis? He said on the basis that you died to sin when you became a child of God, you're severed and separated from sin, and that old man, that old manner of life, that old way of living has been crucified and has been put to death. So his first answer to the question was to look at the sin of the past. Look at your past and your life of sin. What about the past life of sin? You're dead to it, means you're separated from it, and once you've died to something, you don't live in it any longer. When you've died to this life, that is physically, you no longer live in this life. You're severed and separated 
from that. Now let's move on and talk about the second answer he gives to our question. Shall we continue to practice sin? Well, he looks at the present. And what's going on in the present? What you are now. Here's what you were in the past. You died to that. But here is what you are at the present. This is in verses 3 to 5 and then verses 8 through 20. And then we'll come up and back and pick up verses 21 a little bit later. Let's talk about verses 3 to 5. The first thing he talks about is we now have a new life. And he argues this in two small sections, verses 3 to 5 and then verses 8 through 11. We've already looked at verses 6 and 7. And so I said we'd get all the rest of those verses and we're going to pick them up now. So let's start back at verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5, he tells us that we rise from baptism to a new life. Remember what he's answering, the question, shall we continue to practice sin? He said we rise from baptism to a new life. Let's get verse 3. Do you not know? In other words, you ought to know the answer to this. If you understood your obedience to the gospel, if you understood what it was to become a Christian, if you understood the significance of baptism, you ought to know the answer to this question. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... We're baptized into his death, into the benefits of his death. That is, through his death, we have the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28. We're baptized into the benefits of his death. Do you not know that? Therefore, as many as were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk, and you might underline, in newness of life. There's a key phrase to what he's talking about. For if, when, if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, let's talk about that newness of life. We rise from baptism to a new and a different life. He draws a parallel. Here he mentioned in verses 3 to 5, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Back to verse 3, that, are, that we're baptized into his death. He talks about the death of Christ. He talks about his burial in verse 4. He talks about his resurrection in verses 4 and 5. So he talks about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. So the point is that just as Jesus died, and then Jesus was buried, and then Jesus was raised from the dead. What about his resurrection? Well, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised to a new and a different life. So now his parallel. What's his parallel? That we die to sin. We saw that in verse 2. That's the act of repentance. When we, when we repent of our sin, we are dying to the love and the practice of sin. We are buried with him in the waters of baptism. Tells us something about the act of baptism. That's not the argument that he's making, but we learned that from this text. We are buried with him in baptism. Now then in verse 4, that just as we are buried with him in baptism and we die like him and we're buried like him, we're raised to walk in newness of life. His argument is that just as Jesus died, buried and was raised to a new and a different life, so when we come from the waters of baptism, we're rising to a walk in a new and a different life. So if you understand baptism, he is saying, you understand this is a new and a different life. If it's a new and a different life, you're not living like you did before. So the answer to the question is, no, we don't continue to practice sin. Now, verses 8 through 11 says this new life. This is an amplification now of verses 4 and 5. And so if you want to know what, what in the world verses 8 through 10 or 11 are, are about, this is an amplification of what he's talking about, about the newness of life. What do you mean newness of life? Well, here he describes that in verses 8 through 11. Let's see what he says. He says, now if we died with Christ, there's that parallel that we just talked about, we believe that we shall also live with him. See, this is the same point that we just saw in verse 5. 
Same thing we just saw in verse 5. That if we died with Christ, we shall live with Him. Now, it is true that if we die with Christ, we'll live eternally with Him. We'll see more about that at verse 23. But that's not under consideration here. He's not talking about eternal life right now. And the context is going to show us that, and I'll, I'll, we'll, that'll bear out at verse 11 in just a moment. Uh, verse, verse 10. What he's saying is, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. That is, we live unto God. We live unto righteousness. We're living a life of service unto God. If we died with Him and we're buried with Him, then we rise in life of service unto God. Now, verse 10, or verse 9, rather. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. In other words, he died on the account of sin. Now what does that mean? Well, he died, back to verse 9 just for a moment, death no has no more dominion from, over him. He's gone beyond the reaches of, of death. When Jesus died and he was raised, he's gone beyond the reaches of death is the point. Now then, notice at the end of verse 10, he died to sin once, but the life he lives, he lives to God. What does it mean he lives to God? He lives to the glory and the honor of God. He lives to God's glory and honor. So the idea of walking in newness of life has just been explained to me here. Here's your best commentary on that. You don't have to search out and find what this commentator said. The commentator right here in his own context tells me that to walk in newness of life means simply that he lives unto God. Now notice at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you mean in life, uh, alive to God? In the sense that we're living to God, we're living in honor and service into the glory of God. So what's his argument here in verses 3 to 5 and 8 through 11? We have a new and a different life. So shall we continue in sin? Well, look at the present. What are you now? You're now living a new and a different life than you lived before, you're supposed to at least, because you rise from the waters of baptism to live in you in a different life, a life in the service and the honor and glory unto God. Now beginning at verse 12, he begins the language of servitude. It was introduced to us, by the way, at verse 7. But here he talks about the language of servitude. He talks about slavery, servants. And he talks about how that we're still talking about the present, that we are servants of righteousness. What are you now? You're living a new life now. But you are a servant of righteousness. Let's start at verse 12. Verse 12 lays down this principle of servitude, that if we yield to sin, we are its servants. He said, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't let sin rule over you and be your, ser be your master. Don't be a servant of sin. Don't submit yourself to the temptations and the lust of sin so that you are a servant of sin. Don't do that now that you're a Christian. Now verse 13. He just established it, verse 12 now. If you yield to sin, that makes you a servant of sin. Now verse 13. You are now servants of righteousness, so yield yourself as a servant of righteousness. How'd you get to be a servant of righteousness? He's going to tell us at verse 17 in a moment. We'll come back to that. But now verse 13. Do not present yourselves... Uh, your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Now stop there just for a moment. Throughout this context, he uses the language of servitude and pictures you using your body as a member or an instrument to serve some master. So he just said at verse 12, don't yield yourself to the master of sin and become a servant of sin. 
Now at verse 13, he is saying, take your body and use it as a servant and uh, to the master of righteousness. How so? Well, look at verse, verse 13 again. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We just learned from 12 and 13 the principle of free moral agency. What is free moral agency? Man has a choice. Man is a free moral agent. In other words, God allows him to choose to do right or choose to do wrong. Now, there are consequences of each one, but God allows man to make the choice. I don't know of a clearer passage that tells us about man being a free moral agent than Romans 6, 12 and 13. But now let's drop down to verse 16. Now we're coming back and getting 14 and 15 in a moment. But he says we have a new master now in this section. We now have a new master. Look at verse 16. He said, we are servants to the one that we obey. He's just laid down this principle of servitude. And he said, do you not know that to whom you present your Slaves to obey, you are that one slave to whom you obey, whether sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Do you not understand the principles of servitude, principles of slavery? That if you present yourself over here and picturing sin as a master, that if you go over here to sin and you say, I want to be your servant and I'm going to serve you, and you yield to that, you have now made, you're now a slave of sin. But if you go over here to God and you say to God, I want to be your servant, you just become a servant and a slave unto God. Don't you understand that? That's his point. You are a servant to the one whom you obey. Now verse 17. You now that you are a Christian have been delivered to a new master. Now follow the argument here. Look at verse 17. But God be think that though you were the slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now let's get that last phrase in a moment. But just focus on the fact that he said that you obeyed the doctrine. And he said, but God, we think you were the slaves of sin, but you obeyed from the heart sincerely the form of doctrine. In other words, you obeyed the gospel. You obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by doing that, you no longer are the slaves of sin. He loses the terms of servitude. Now, let's get ahead of ourselves. Let's get ahead of ourselves. In verse 19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. In other words, I'm illustrating this so simply in language you understand so you can easily get the point. He's using the language of servitude. Here's how, how master-slave relationships worked. Here is a master number one who owns this slave. There would be a time when master one wants to sell that slave to master two. So what he does, he's been now sold to master two. What does he do now with the slave? He then takes that slave and delivers him over to master two so that he now has a new master. Who's master one? Master one is sin. You were the servants of sin. You were the slaves of sin. But you obeyed the other master. You became now obedient to the other master, righteousness, that is, unto God, and now you've been delivered. Now go back to verse 16 or 17 and see if that's not the wording that you find there. If you have the King James, you'll notice a footnote. Some translations vary a little bit with reference to this. The New King James has seemingly corrected what the King James regulated to a footnote. And that is, it's not saying you obeyed the gospel or you obeyed the doctrine that was delivered to you. That was true. But you obeyed that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. It's a language of servitude. It's the idea of delivering the slave to a new master. 
And so his point is, look at the present. You now have a new master. You've been delivered to a new master. You're not serving that master anymore. You were the servants of sin, that's right. But you obeyed the form of doctrine. And if you obey that form of doctrine, that's your new master, verse 12. It's your new master, verse 16. So you've been delivered to your new master. You've been sold to a new master. And now your new master is righteousness, so you serve righteousness now. So that means now, verses 18 to 20, you're free from sin. Now go back to the master-slave relationship. Remember the first slave, uh, the, the first master was sin. And if you've been sold and delivered to a new master, you're free from serving sin. You're not, you're not serving sin anymore. You're free from that. No longer his slave. No longer his servant. Notice beginning at verse 18 now. Let's get 18 to 20. And having been set free from sin, you've been delivered to a new master, verse 17. You became the slaves of righteousness. You have a new master. Now, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, because the inability to understand this, unless I get simple, is his, is his point. For just as you have presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Now, that's an interesting verse. And let's see why that might be interesting. Verse, verse 19. Here's his point. As you have in the past yielded to master number one, sin, now yield yourselves to master number two, righteousness. That's his ultimate point. But the wording is interesting. Look at verse 19. You have yielded yourselves as slaves to uncleanness and of unlaw and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. In other words, when you were the slave of sin, you committed sin, and what sin often does is it grows and becomes greater. And so one sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin, which leads to another sin. And so as you yield yourself to sin, that leads to more and more sin. So what's the point? Get the rest of verse, ni uh, verse 19. Are you reading with me? So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Seems to be drawing a parallel. Just as when you were serving sin, that led to more sin. When you serve righteousness, that leads to more righteousness and more holiness. It describes seemingly a process of growing in the service of the Lord. That's parallel to 2 Peter 3, 18, growing in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. Now look at verse 20. For when you were the slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. Remember the two masters up here? When you were serving the one master, you were not obligated to serve the other master. You're free from that. When you're now the servant of the new master, you're free from the other master. You can't serve both. So if you're serving sin, you're free from serving God. Doesn't mean you don't have any obligation toward God, but you're not serving righteousness. If you're serving righteousness, you're not serving sin. That's his point by looking at the present. Now, let's go back to verses 14 and 15. We're still talking about the present. What's he saying about the present? We have a new life. We're servants of righteousness, but he says we're under grace. Look at verse 14. He said, for as many as are, uh, I'm the wrong chapter, I'm sorry, back up to verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Still in the language of servitude. Sin shall not reign over you. Be your master. For, here's the reason, you're not under law but under grace. He is, what, what does he mean by that? What he's saying is that if we were under mere law, there is no escape. Go back to chapter 3. He's talking about the law of Moses. We talked about that recently in talking about Romans chapter 3. Some suggest he's talking about mere law. All right, that's fine. 
don't have a problem with that. But the same principle is, is the case. If we're under law and mere law or under the law of Moses, the only way to be justified by the law of Moses was keep the law perfectly. Leviticus 18.5. And so if we were under the law without the grace of Christ, we're locked under the law and we're in sin and there's no way to get out. If we're under mere law, all law can do, Romans 3 had pointed out, was pronounce you're guilty. It doesn't pronounce freedom, it pronounces you guilty of sin. And so he's saying we're not under mere law. We're not under law alone. Not saying we're not under law at all. If, if we're not under law, then there's no such thing as sin because sin is a transgression of the law. So he's not saying we're not under law at all. In fact, chapter 8 shows we are. What he's saying is, we're not under mere law. We now have a way to escape. There's no reason for you still being in sin. Because you have a way to escape. Go back to verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but you're under grace. You have, a, you have a key to get out of that prison of sin. You have an avenue to be forgiven of that sin. You shouldn't carry the burden of sin anymore. Because you have a way to escape from that sin. You're under grace. Now then, we're back to our question from chapter 5. Maybe that means that I can just sin and I'm okay. Because I don't have to serve sin because I'm under grace and grace is going to take care of everything. So look at verse 15. Verse 15 is saying that doesn't encourage sin though. Look at verse 15. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Does that mean then I can, oh, we're, we have grace, so I can sin because I can get grace, and I can go ahead and sin some more, I mean, I can get grace. And his answer was the same answer he gave back at verse 2. He said, certainly not, God forbid. What evidence does he give? That's when he gets into this language of servitude again. Because if you yield to sin, you're a servant of sin. You go back into service, and you're back in the bondage again, is his point. And that's what he's arguing. So, focuses on the life of the present. He did three times in this context. When you look at the present, he said, let, let's, let's focus on the present. We looked at the past. You're dead to that. When you look at the present, you have a new life. You're a servant of righteousness, and we're under grace. We have a way to escape. And that's why we don't continue to make a practice of sin. You're living a life of service unto God. Now, let's get the last three verses, 21, 22, and 23. There he moves from not just the past and the present, but he moves on to the future. Remember what his question is. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do we go on just practicing sin like we did before we became children of God? His answer is certainly not. On what basis do you say that, Paul? By looking at the future. What does he say about the future? Well, he says two things. Sin leads to eternal death. Sin leads to eternal death. Verses 21 and 23. So notice what he says at verse 21. Don't continue to practice sin because here's what sin will lead you to. What fruit then we have in the things of which we're now ashamed? If you look back at your past life and things you've done, things that you repented of when you became a Christian, you're ashamed of that. In godliness, in holiness, the filthiness. For the end of those things is death. Now, if that's all we had and it stopped at that point, I'm not sure just without alone, without verse 22 and 23, is death, talking about separation now, is it talking about eternal? Well, the context is going to tell me it's eternal death. And I'll give you evidence of that as we go to the next two verses. In fact, let's go to verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The death there is eternal death, eternal suffering. You say, how do you know? Because it's put in contrast. Look at verse 23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Death is in contrast to eternal life. This is eternal death. So what he's saying is, let's look to the future. Sin leads to eternal separation from God. Not only would you be a servant of sin now and separated from God now, you're going to be separated for eternity if you continue to practice sin. Now, verses 22 and then back to verse 23. Righteousness leads to eternal life. Back to verse 22. But now having been set free from sin, there's that language of servitude. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Remember you raised the question in verse 21, what fruit have we in this? Well, here's the fruit of righteousness. It's eternal life. Now verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so what's his point? His point is eternity of the future is one of the things that we look at as we point to the future that we either have heaven if we live right or we have hell if we continue to practice sin. Now, what have we seen? We're not to continue to practice sin. What's your answer, Paul? Well, Paul says here, we, we see the answer by looking at the past, by looking at the present, and then looking at the future. The sin of the past, as you're dead and separated from the past, the sin of the, uh, the life of the present, service unto God, says we don't continue to practice sin, and the eternity of the future says we're not to continue to practice sin. Interesting to note that Romans 6 uses two analogies. He talks about being dead and being alive. He talks about being freed and being slaves. But what's interesting is he says we need to die in order that we might live. We need to be freed so we can become slaves. That's his argument. You need to die so that you can live. Have you died to the love and practice of sin? If you haven't become a Christian and you haven't repented of your sins, you haven't died to sin. You have to die in order to live. And if you're still in sin, you haven't been freed. But you need to be freed from sin so you can become a slave. Slave of God. Servant of righteousness. Die in order to live. Be free in order to become a slave. There may be one more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?